God, we love you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you that just what makes our prayer effective is not our wisdom, not our combination of words, not our knowledge, not how long we have, have been, been a Christ follower. God, that you invite us into something greater, deeper, more wonderful than that. And so, God, this morning, as we come to your word, looking at the, what you taught us, Christ, of how we should pray, as he showed us how he prayed, let us find freedom in that, let us be compelled in that, and let us, as a result, be characterized as a people of prayer. So, Lord, we submit all this to you, submit our lives to you, submit our understanding to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead, open your Bibles to Matthew 6, if you haven't already. Um, if, you have an, if you don't have a Bible or an app, uh, look around you on the floor. There's a Bible there. Feel free to use that. And if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. We would love for you to have that. Um, we're we're going to start specifically in verse 7. So last week, we talked around this passage. We talked kind of verses before and verses after, and Jesus kind of took this instructional caveat in the middle of this bigger thought that we looked at last week. So this week, we're going to look at this instructional caveat on how we should pray from Jesus. And as we come to this section of Scripture, Matthew 6, 7 through 15, some of you would know it possibly as the Lord's Prayer, because again, it's His prayers, how He prays. Some of you may know it if you, if you grew up Catholic or are Catholic now, and you go to confession and you get prescribed a certain number of Our Fathers. This is your Our Father, okay? So it's the Our Father who art in heaven, okay? So maybe, the, maybe it's familiar to you, to you for that. So, but that's what we're teaching through today. It's what we would call the Lord's Prayer. So this is His teaching on prayer. Like I said, if we assume... We can assume that if Jesus taught this of how we should pray, we can also assume, like I said, that this is how he prayed. Jesus prayed this way. So let's go ahead and read through our whole text real quick, and then we're going to kind of teach through it. I'm excited about today because prayer is such an integral part of who we are in Christ and as the church, but yet it's one of those things where we often find ourselves ridden by guilt by it or just confusion or, or, or just kind of have a hard time just doing it. You're like, I should pray more. We all say that. I should pray more. At the end of the day, we could probably all pray more no matter what, but this is going to liberate us, hopefully, to something a little greater. So here we go, starting in verse 7 of chapter 6. Let's read this together. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others in their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So today, as we look at Jesus' teaching on how we should pray, how we should pray. Let me just say a quick caveat here, a quick little word. And so, and when we look at the teaching in Scripture, sometimes it's prescriptive and sometimes it's descriptive. Prescriptive is, is this is the very thing you should do. If this was prescriptive, that, that would mean that this is the only words we should pray. 
These are the only things we should pray. If it's descriptive, which I would say this teaching is, it's describing the, the foundational principle, it's describing the way to, we look at the principles that Jesus is teaching of these motivating principles of how we work through this prayer. That's why he says, pray then like this. So this is a prayer of giving us a form and a model, but not a script. Okay, so today as we look at this, this form and this model of which Jesus is teaching us to preach, we're going to see why we should pray. We're going to see what we should pray. We're going to see the wonder in prayer, the wonder of prayer. And then we're going to see the outcome of prayer. So that's what we're working through today. So first, let's just start with why we should pray. And, and we'll start with something familiar. I think if you've been around church or maybe you've heard around church, it's pretty much like you're used to getting this list of things you're supposed to do, list of things you do and don't do. So we're going to start there because it's familiar, and it's true here. So why should we pray out of the gate? We're going to back up a little bit to verse 5, just those first words that said, and when you pray, and then verse 7 where we started today, it says, and when you pray. So just as we said last week, there is an assumption. This is a script. This is Jesus teaching to the church Mostly, there is an assumption that the people of God, those who are in Christ, those that are walking in relationship with him, would pray. It's a non-negotiable. It's a matter of fact. It's an assumed reality that you are a people of prayer. So first off, just because there is a mandate to pray, we pray. Okay, so we can start there, but we're not going to stay there. But we pray because we're told to. We pray because it's an assumption. So then, when we ask why we should pray, we also think of the motive of prayer, right? Not just that we're told to, but also why. Like, why? What moves us to prayer? So first, we're going to learn through the negative. And that's how Jesus teaches it here. He teaches through the negative motives, the motives and he highlights it through the Pharisees, the, the, the religious leaders of, of, of the Jewish people, the people of Israel, the Pharisees and the scribes. And then he also used the Gentiles, the, the pagans as they called it, everyone that wasn't the people of God, everyone that were not of the people of Israel, the Jewish people. So we see it first here. There's two errors that we see in verse 5 and verse 7. We're going to look at just verse 5 first here to see the error of the Pharisees. So it's backing up just a touch. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, speaking of the Pharisees, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So we talked about this last week. Their sin was not trying to attain righteousness, which they also did that. This was the sin of ostentation, the sin of putting themselves on a pedestal so that they would receive the glory. And in that through, and they received the glory by receiving the praise of man. So when he says they received their reward, he gave, them, he gave them what they wanted. Instead of his favor, and instead of him being glorified, they, were, they took a lesser glory and they got the praise of man as opposed to offering praise to God. So first we see the first error is praying hypocritically. Praying hypocritically, the false prayer, the false motive. Praying for the glory of your own self and the praise of man. Praying to attain your desires over God's. The, the prayer that is in conflict. The prayer that is against the prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden when he said, not my will, but yours be done. Okay, so that's error one. Error two, we see in the Gentiles, we see it in verse seven. It says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And these are the people, honestly, that probably... Well, it's both of them, that intimidate us to pray because we hear these people, we get impressed by their big words and their long prayers, and 
You know, I could never pray for that long. Um, I, <laughs> I remember a time in our office, we have a friend named Charles, and we were doing, uh, myself and Sula and Norm were uh, talking through the sermon for the upcoming week, and we spent some time just praying for, praying for uh, just kind of the needs of our community and our church and the world, and just praying for God's Word to transform. And we invited Charles to, to come and hang out with us and, and pray with us, and he was, uh, he, and I said, you know, hey, when it gets to you, Charles, feel free to pray or not pray. You know, I'll ask you when you get there. So we, I pray, Norm prays, Sula prays. I don't know if you know them. I mean, they, they, they pray, and it's sincere. I'm not equating, hopefully I'm not equating us three to these examples, but I'm quite, uh, what I, the point I'm making is how we respond to the prayers we hear. And it gets to Charles, and I said, Charles, would you like to pray? He goes, no, no, y'all pretty much said it all. And so I said, well, amen, well, in Jesus' name, amen. And he looks at me, he's like, I have never heard so much praying in my life. And like, so he like, you know, like they were, we prayed these heart, hopefully heartfelt and sincere prayers, but they were long. And oftentimes when we hear these kind of long prayers with, with big words that we're not used to, we all of a sudden think our prayers are not that effective, but we see that if it's just words of volume or, or, or the length of the words themselves, that that's not necessarily meaningful. This word, empty phrases we see here in, in Scripture is this word, batologio, which means to babble. It's the meaningless chatter. And so he's saying like, hey, they're just saying things, but they're not engaged with their mind. The Gentiles were praying mindlessly. This was their error. They were praying mindlessly without thought to the person of God, his purpose for the world, or their need for him. They were just, just stammering on. 1 Corinthians 14, 15, the first part of it says, What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will, but I will pray with my mind also. It goes on to talk about singing in the same way, which is great. We should do that on Sundays as well. Not just sing with our mouths, but also with our spirit and mind. So, but here when we pray, we see that our minds should be engaged thinking on who God is. A.W. Tozer says one of the most important things about a man is what comes to his mind when he thinks on God. And he says your religion can only go as high as your thoughts of God. So it's important that we engage our mind, that we think on who God is. So we see the two errors that were made was the hypocritical prayer and the mindless or mechanical prayer. And, you know, and you think about for those of you that come here every week, there are some things that we do every Sunday. Any of those have the danger of becoming mechanical, mindless, or hypocritical. Anytime there's repetition, we can drift into that mindlessness. So we should always press ourselves to be mindful. Think on who God is. So the positive motivation to pray, that's the negative that we see. Now, teaching in the positive, we see it here in verse 9. He says, it starts out with this prayer. So this is how we should pray, our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. What do we learn from that? What does that say to this? What posture is like for you to pray that prayer and mean it? Now, again, now we're assuming as we go into this, we're not praying hypocritically. We're not praying mindlessly. So this is the sincere offering. Where do you have to be? What does your motive have to be for you to start there? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We see, I'm going to go ahead and put it out there and we'll talk through it. The ultimate motivation for our prayer and we'll go ahead and say instead of ultimate, we can place it, replace it with our eternal motivation, just to give you a hint, must be the glory of God. 
It must be the glory of God. We see this when we start. We see our Father who's in heaven. Hallowed be your name. When we think of our Father, again, he is, a, he is, he is personal. He's loving. He's wise. He's near. So we see this, this loving, inviting, just benevolent God. And then our Father, who is all those things in heaven. And when we say that, when we acknowledge that, we see that God is glorious. He's transcendent. He is securing. He is above all. Our words cannot attain a high enough language to describe the majesty and glory of God. And then it says, hallowed be your name. I've so we acknowledge, and in desiring his glory, we acknowledge that he is a loving, good father who is in heaven, who is majestic and sovereign, and we say, hallowed be your name. And the word hallowed is this word hagiazo, and it's to make sacred, to consecrate, to sanctify. And let's just break that down for a second. It says, hallowed be your name, to make sacred, consecrate, sanctify your name. And we say your name, we're saying all that God is. All that God is, every bit of who he is, all of his character, all of his action, all of his intent, all of it, all of it. That is his name. So to say, hallowed be your name. And to say that hallowed is to make sacred, we are not making God's name sacred in that prayer. We are not making the personhood, the character of God holy. We're not making it any more glorious in that prayer. We don't have an effect on that. God is that. He is unchanging. He is immutable. So what does that prayer mean? It's saying, in our hearts, we are, this is our intent, that our intent is that you would be hallowed in our hearts and in our minds. I'm setting my mind on you. I'm setting my life toward you. You are glorious. You are worthy. You are loving. You are kind. Hallowed be your name. All that you do is good. All that you do is right. All that you do is loving. So I glorify you. We start there. It's our intent. So we're stating our intent. How do we do this? How does it go beyond words? How can we make it sure that we're not just saying, hallowed be your name? So just to encourage you, again, I've kind of been dancing around this and through this. I mean, think on the majesty of God. Think on his loving kindness. I mean, actually just take some time. We are people that don't set enough time to think. And technology doesn't make it easier. I'm speaking to myself. So just be like, being just as intentional as you are with the rest of your schedule. Set some time aside just to think on God. Think about your life. Look around you. Think on the majesty, think on his loving kindness, think on the transcendence of God, think on his eminence, the fact that he again is our, our, our majestic sovereign God in heaven and our loving heavenly father who is near. If you want some help, which I would highly encourage you because we can't get there on our own, spend some time in the Old Testament. I mean, this God is exalted. He is shown in full display. Start with Genesis where he is creator over all. Go into Exodus and see him as the mighty deliverer. Step into Psalms and see that he is a glorious God who is also a dear friend. You see it all come together. All throughout the Old Testament. So spend some time there. Discuss it with each other. Share it with me. That would be a glorious day. So to make him hallowed in your, in your heart and your mind is not just to say it, but is to engage with great intentionality all that he is and all that he has done. So why? Why? So when we start here, when we start in this place of our Father in heaven, 
Hallowed be your name. When we start there, we cannot help but yield the rest of our prayers to his right purposes. All of a sudden, the question of, is your prayer good, which really should say, would be asking, is my prayer effective for God's purpose? It kind of takes care of that. To all of a sudden be humbled with who we are in our finite wisdom and our limited knowledge and to understand God in his infinite wisdom and his all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present personhood. All of a sudden, the rest of our prayers can't help but at least come from a right place. So that's why we start there. Right understanding of God informs our desires and our perspective of what we need. Because all too often, I think we see that often what we think we need is not actually what we need. So this informs our perspective. So we see that our motive for prayer should be for the glory of God. That's our, that's our foundational motive for prayer. That's, that's everything. It, 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 it is an in separable, unavoidable thread that must weave through every desire that we have, must weave through every request that we lay before him. It should inform our humility. So if we know that, we can ask now, what should we pray? If we know why, because he's told us to, he's commanded us to, also because of the glorious invitation of who we pray to, it informs our motive. What should we pray? So if the motive is God's glory... I think that should also be the first thing, not I think, Scripture would tell us, should be the first thing that we pray. So we desire His glory, and then as we bring our needs, our requests, our supplications, the first thing we pray is, God, let your glory be, be known. What does that mean? What, is, what does glory mean? I, you know, so this week I've started with my kids this, this, question, this kind of little three questions, was reading through this thing called the New City Catechism, and they kind of summarized it down to start with like the youngest of kids. And so I say, kids, who created you? And Brooklyn always says God. Gavin says Jesus. Trinity, we're good. So, <laughs> yep, that's right. I say, what else did God create? What else did he make? And they, they say some form of everything, all of it. They made all, he made all things, which is the, that's the answer I'm looking for. And then I say, okay, so why did God make you and why did he make everything? Why did he make you and everything else? Why did he make you and all things? They're, they're still having a hard time getting past love, but I like that. It's part of that. But the, really the answer that I tell them is Glory. He made you in all things for his glory. And they're getting there. They're starting. And so finally, I, the fourth time or so, it started to sink in. And Brooklyn goes, Daddy, she's three. What is glory? And I knew that I was speaking over their heads, by the way. I'm just putting wood in the fireplace so one day the spirit can catch it on fire. But I knew that. So I was like, okay. I knew this question was going to come. How can I answer it? And I said, well, honey, glory, the glory of God is anything that shows how good he is, how good God is. So when we're praying for the glory of God, when we pray that, what we're saying is, God, I just want the world to see you for who you are, because all that he is is good, all that he is is loving, even in his, even in his judgment, even in his wrath, even in the consequence that we face for sin, 
He is loving. His intent is to redeem a people, to restore a people, to reconcile. That's why he sent Jesus. So this is what we're praying when we come into verse 10 and we hear it crying out. Hopefully we're crying out for his glory when we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is there anything else better than that? Is there anything else that could exhibit the goodness of God than that? That is what, his, that is what it is to pray for his glory. Your kingdom come, all of your intent, all of your will, the restoration of your rule and reign over, over your people. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we pray that, we're praying for all of God's personhood, his character, to be on high display through his church and all, his, all of creation. Through those who have called on Christ, those who have been made members one of another, those who have partnered together for the gospel. We're praying that his goodness would be on high display first in my life, your life as you pray this, and then all of those who are in him around you. We're praying for it to be done no matter what. We understand that's the hope of the world. It is only the glory of God that draws man to himself. So it is only as the people of God surrender and live out this way of life, this way of God, that his glory is made known in us and people are drawn to him. That's the beauty of the work. So if we understand God's glory in this way, can we say there's any cause more noble that we can be concerned about in our prayers. I mean, like, what, what other concern is there other than for him to be glorified, his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? There's a promise fulfilled in Christ that we are made new, new creations, adopted as sons and daughters, made citizens of the kingdom, but there is a promise to be fulfilled that is in full in heaven now, and when Jesus returns, we will know in full. No more tears, no more sickness, no more death, no more pain, no more rebellion. Is there anything more noble? So our greatest concern is and should be the glory of God in our prayers. So what is the next thing Jesus teaches us to pray? We see it here in verse 11 through 13, and I'm glad he went here because we'll see in a minute kind of what I think our natural response might be. It says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. So to summarize this, we're to bring our every need to God. He summed it all up right there. See, when I think about the, our greatest concern being the glory and will of God alone, I can easily land on the understanding that that's the only prayer that I should pray. All right, come to you to pray, God. Thank God, your glory on this earth, please. Your will be done, not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Like, why should we pray anything else? And I'm thankful. Like, Jesus showed us, okay, so... I'm going to show you you're free to pray something else. I'm even telling you to pray something else. I'm telling you to bring your cares. So what God is actually saying is saying, yes, be concerned with my glory and my will above all, but I'm, I'm inviting you because of this relationship, this loving relationship that we have to pray for every specific need that you have, everything that concerns you. And it's funny when I think about that. I think about pulling into a crowded parking lot and my aunt Saying, oh, Jesus, give us a close spot. And, I, and I'm like, I think God has greater concerns than our parking spot. We, all, we probably need the exercise anyway, so who's to say he won't put us out here for our good? But, that, but that's kind of the invitation. Like, 
that's, it's a risk-free prayer. If you pray honestly, I think I'm getting ahead of myself, but we're just going to go ahead and go there. If you pray honestly and sincerely saying, hey, God, here's my concern for the day, but I trust you more than I trust myself, there's a lot of freedom because all of a sudden his goodness is not determinant of you getting what you want. You getting what you get by his hand is the very expression of his goodness because he knows what's better for you. He created you. So let's, let's get back on track. So to expand on that, again, just to, to comfort you, give you a little, bit more, a little bit more oomph to understand, you really can pray every care that you have for. And as we, well, I'll get there. Okay, so Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says this. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So if we trust God, if we trust all that we need and want to God, and then we walk in obedience and say, God, here's my life, and then he works in ways that we don't expect or want, we can say, hey, you know what? I have peace because his way is better than mine. He will guard my heart my mind from believing the lies that Satan speaks. Oh, he must not love you. Oh, you must not have done enough. You aren't good enough. No, he knows better than we do. So sometimes he works in ways we don't ask for, but it's still for his glory and our good. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, casting all your anxieties on him, all of them. Again, whatever care you have, cast on him because he cares for you. I mean, remember, we're submitting our needs to a God who is our father, who is our father. Praise God, he's in heaven too, again transcendent above all. His ways are not our ways. He's wiser than we are. And just kind of thinking about that, you think about what it says in Psalms, that he will give you the desires of your heart. So as we submit our wants and needs to him, we can know that as we are transformed, as we are sanctified, as we are made more like him through the work of Christ, the truth, the Holy Spirit, that your desires change too. So you can know that as that's happening, your desires and God's desires are coming closer and closer to the same. And although we will always have to just trust in his sovereign love for us and his sovereign zealousness for his own work to be done in this world, and in the fact of our prayers kind of, again, being answered as he wants, we can also know that that work is happening. So make sure not to miss the wonder and the splendor of this truth, the wonder of this prayer. This prayer is that God knows us and he has made a way for us to know him in Christ. We are praying a prayer in relationship, a prayer of knowing God as our Father in heaven is neither ignorant nor hesitant. He's not ignorant in need of our informing him in order for him to meet our needs. Matthew 6, 8 that we just read, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. He's also not distant. He's not hesitant. He's not slow to care. In just a few verses in Matthew 7, verse 11, we see, If you then who are evil, meaning us who are fallen, contend with the flesh, who are not fully seeing as God sees, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So to know, we're praying prayers of knowing and being known. To know God in his infinitude. All that he is, again, all those things we've been talking about, as we, as we understand that more the, more, should we, the more we should be zealous for his glory, not ours. The more we should be zealous for his will and not ours. 
Who do you trust more, yourself or him? Let's get honest about it. And then let's get honest about which is better. Control is easier. We like control. We like being able to define what we get and don't get. That's why we want to act as our own self-sovereign. It's where it started with Adam and Eve. They thought they knew better. It's gone on since then. Surrender is better. His way is better. So the more we understand his infinitude, the more zealous we should be for his glory and will. The more we understand how he knows us and loves us even yet, all the more we should be moved to pray out of the reality of that relationship. Again, just those people that you, you have a hard time going through a day without having a conversation with. Just because you know they care for you, you've got a closeness with them, there's a familiarity, there's a trust. That's what we're talking about. The more we understand the loving relationship. So Jesus is teaching us to bring every need, and he's highlighted our greatest needs in this teaching real quick. We see, we see first, as he says, give us this day our daily bread. He's addressing our physical need. God, we, we, we trust everything that we need in this world, sustenance, shelter, provision, whatever else, to you. Your way's better than ours. You know, when, when Amber and I uh, were having our first child, Gavin, we had always set up to that point that we wanted Amber to be a stay-at-home mom. That was her desire. I was like, hey, I love it. That's great. As she got pregnant, we said, okay, all right, so we've always said we want this. You know, it never makes sense financially unless you just were really mature, which we were not. And so we didn't plan on it. But most people find themselves in that boat. You can just never afford it. It just never makes sense. And so we were like, hey, listen, let's be prayerful about this. Is this convictional? Do we feel like this is something that God is leading us to? And let's let that drive us. So then we pray. We feel like, okay, yes, this was affirmed. We should work towards Amber being a stay-at-home mom. It no longer became a financial question. It was no longer a matter of can we afford for her to stay home. It became a matter of priority. Because we had trusted that God was leading us to that, so then we trusted for God to provide. And it doesn't just mean money. We knew that he could provide monetarily, but we also knew that he could provide providentially in his supernatural ways, whether it's through people helping or just through creativity, us understanding ways that we can trim our life and live sacrificially and, and give up things that we don't need. He did that. She's been a stay-at-home mom for six years now. Awesome. So, but that's our, so again, when we think about the, us praying for our daily needs, our physical needs, our sustenance, we're not saying, God, because you love me, give me everything I want. We're saying, God, I trust all that I need to you. I trust all that I need to you, starting right here in my physical life. And we live convictionally towards that. And then he says, forgive us our sins. And that's the spiritual need. The most fundamental need of a person is to be able to stand before God rightly, to be able to stand before God restored, to be able to stand before God in right standing, and in Christ that's made possible. So you're only forgiven because of the work of Christ. So we see first our physical needs, and we see our most important spiritual needs taken care of, and then we even see the moral needs, the, the forgiveness of sins. Forgive me of my debts as I forgive those who have sinned against me, my debtors. And just a fun little caveat, as you see, there's kind of these extraneous, extraneous verses that don't seem to follow the flow after this prayer where he talks about, again, and if you forgive or don't forgive. That, to me, that's, as I look at that, it's Jesus just re-emphasizing the importance this is, of the body of Christ. This is kind of a one another bonus, the people of God saying, hey, you, this is a word to the church, you must be a forgiving people. It's a marker of who you are in me. So we see it here, him speaking to the moral importance of us not falling into temptation, us being protected 
by his truth, by the Holy Spirit, and then he also reinforces it later that we be a people that personify this forgiveness as we were forgiven. So he meets our physical need, our spiritual need, and our moral needs. So to, so to desire God's will and glory above all doesn't nullify our desires or needs, but it invites us to submit our desires to the very purpose of God. So here's our kind of thesis for the day. The chief end of prayer is not that God would bend his will to achieve our purposes, but that in praying, our will and purpose would be conformed to God's. Or as Martin Luther said, by our praying, we are instructing ourselves more than we are him. The glory of God is our greatest motivator for this kind of prayer. Um, we were doing a partnership interview this week with, uh, with Hannah Jordan, and she said something in her interview that I thought was especially poignant and relatable today. So she's going to take about five minutes and share uh, just kind of the, the thoughts and story of what she shared with us. Hello. Um, this is very strange for me. I don't usually get up in front of people. But, um, okay, so Heath asked me to share a little piece of my story. Um, a lot of y'all know that, or some of you may know that, depression is a really big part of my story. Um, it's something that I, um, it's a continual struggle for me. Um, but in the deepest valley of that battle um, a few years ago, the Lord was really sweet and spoke really clearly to me about his sovereignty and his goodness in the midst of that. Um, and I realized that I'll, exactly what Heath has been saying, that if I really believe that um, that God is completely sovereign and good and in control of all things, and that my purpose on this earth is to give him glory in all that I do, um, then I can have joy even in the midst of sorrow. Um, I can know that even if my greatest fear comes true or my greatest dream comes true, that um, where he has me is on purpose. Um, and where he has me is where I have the capacity to give him the most glory. And that is worth celebrating. Um, that um, in the midst of, um, of willing myself out of bed in the morning and calling Taylor in uh, the middle of the night crying or whatever it was, this misery of depression, um, coming back to knowing the Lord has me here on purpose, um, and if, I, if this is where I can give him glory, then that is better. Um, and, and so there's, there's a joy and contentment that comes from that. I'm fulfilling my purpose, and, um, and that, that's satisfying. That's more satisfying than, um, than living a happy life and it fading away at the end. Um, my eternal purpose um, is so much greater than me having a happy life on earth. <laughs> Amen. Don't walk away. Let's just say a quick prayer. I think just a quick prayer for you, okay? Okay. All right. God, we love you. Thank you for Hannah. God, but even greater, I thank you for your faithfulness and your love. I thank you for the way you're working in your life. I thank you for her sharing just that transforming work of, of the wonder of your sovereign goodness and your will being done in our lives and how that is a source of joy. I thank you for her vulnerability and her honesty to see that the dark is still dark, but your light chases away the darkness. So God, let us understand this in a real way. Let us understand it in a personal way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you. And that's the, I want y'all to catch that, because I think often we think about this, this joy in any circumstance or, or, or these greater motivations. We think that that means we don't get to be real. We think that means that we don't get to be human. We think that, that means we don't get to struggle. Like, hear what Hannah said. Like, sleepless nights, calling friends over, sobbing, 
Like there was, there's turmoil there. And again, thinking about casting all your cares, anxieties, it doesn't say deny your anxieties. It says bring them to me. That's the invitation. And so when we think about that, I mean, I, I, I don't need to say anything else. It's clear. There's an amazing wonder that we need to behold when we pray. And I hope that Hannah's story, I hope that it helps you see that our prayers are prayers of knowing that, like we said, the knowing, of, the knowing God, the wonder of that relationship, and being known by Him. I'm going to close with, summar, with this summary from John Calvin. Uh, it's, it's a little lengthy. I think it'll be on the screen to help you follow along. And then we'll, kinda, and then we'll close in prayer. <laughs> It says, believers do not pray with the view of informing God about things unknown to him or of exciting him to do his duty or of urging him as though he were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray in order that they may arouse themselves to seek him, that they may exercise their faith in meditating on his promises, that they may relieve themselves from their anxieties by pouring them into the, his bosom. In a word, that they may declare that from him alone they hope and expect, both for themselves and for others, all good things. Let's pray. God, let's be amazed by you. First, just with who you are, or that you are a sovereign, good, majestic, loving, kind, benevolent, patient, God, who is also our Father. And Lord, that in your infinite love, Lord, you made a way for us who do not deserve to be restored, to know you. And Lord, to all of a sudden, to know that in these prayers, we're not just charged to offer up religious ritual acts. We're not just left to a mechanical and mindless recitation, recitation, God, but that we are invited in our prayers to commune with you, to bring our every care and anxiety to you, God. And Lord, in that, we are not pleading and trying to come up with a good enough sales pitch to convince you to move on our behalf. Lord, we are your beloved creation that you created for your purpose, set apart for your glory, God. And as you say, your plans are for our good, not to harm us. You say that all things work for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So as Hannah said, whether our, our greatest dream or our worst fear comes to fruition, we can have peace. We can know contentment. Because we were created for your glory. We were created for your will. We've been invited to display those out of a relationship. So Lord, let us find peace in this. Let us find boldness and courage as we pray. Let our prayers, let, we, let us see the outcome of our prayers being that you are glorified by your will being accomplished in our lives as our wills are conformed to yours. Let us see a world impacted by your transforming truth, given in Christ, lived out and embodied in our lives. Let us see our life used for these purposes in a very real and identifiable way, God, that we wouldn't just be things that we acknowledge that are happening kind of by faith, but that we would see very real instances 
God, let us know. I know that in these prayers and in this way of, of relating in life and walking with you, that we would know a satisfaction greater than any other promise could, that could be provided. So, Lord, I just closed this prayer with the summary statement of the Westminster Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So God, let us live for Your glory and enjoy You forever.